We are kicking off things with the song Plankton Dance from Insect Surfers. It's on their album Infragreen, and they gave us permission to play it here on Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is episode number 69, and I am your host, Derek M. Cook. And I've got a couple of things coming up on today's episode. I am super excited to get to it. But before I do that, first I want to tell you that you're going to get to hear the song Plankton Dance in its entirety at the end of the show. Secondly, I want to tell you about our contact information and our website, which is over at monsterkidradio.net. You can find everything that you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website between episodes, because right now you're listening to the show. But, you know, get over to our website between episodes and check out our YouTube page, our Live 365 channel, our Flickr album, and our contact information. You can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can drop us a line at our voicemail line, which is 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-479-5657. There's also a link to our Facebook page where you can get involved in conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes. That's our Facebook group. Our Facebook page, well, if you haven't liked us already, we'd like to ask you to give us a like because the more likes we get, well, actually, I don't know what you get out of it. But Facebook seems to use like as a currency and, well... The more likes, the better, right? You know what else is the more, the better? Reviews in the iTunes store. Now, as of this recording, we are at 34 reviews in the U.S. version of the iTunes store. We are in the middle of our 50 review challenge here on Monster Kid Radio. Once we get to 50 reviews here on the show, we're going to launch a special. We're going to do something new, something in addition to the regular show, something that I'm really excited about that I've actually already got a little bit of pre-production done on. I'm excited to launch this new thing, but we got to get to 50 reviews to make it happen. If we get to 35 reviews, I'll announce what that thing will be. One more review, folks. One more review in the iTunes store. And we're talking about honest reviews. Give us an honest review in the iTunes store and we will announce what the special will be we get to 50, the special actually happens. I want to thank everybody who has given us a review or given us a like or talked us up on various message boards or whatever. We just really appreciate everybody's support for what we do here at Monster Kid Radio. And I want to thank Frank Dietz for taking some time out of his weekend last weekend to talk to us here. Now, who is Frank Dietz? Well, go to his IMDb page. He was an animator for Disney. He was an actor, he was a screenwriter, and now he's a filmmaker. He is the filmmaker behind the documentary Beast Wishes, which came out last year. It's about Bob and Kathy Burns. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about his career, his background, in part one of our discussion with Frank here on Monster Kid Radio. The reason it's coming up is because, and you're going to hear about this in part two, and I think I've already mentioned it here on the show, Frank is now working on a new documentary called Long Live the King, The Legacy of Kong. Now, this is a crowdfunded effort that he's got going, and we're going to talk in depth with him about the Long Live the King documentary in part two. In part one, it's all about his background and what he went through to make Beast Wishes happen, and it's just a good conversation, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. After that, speaking of crowdfunding, we're going to bring returning guest Stephen D. Sullivan to the show to talk about his new project, Tournament of Death 3. He does this Tournament of Death Every Winter Olympics. For those of you who don't know, Stephen D. Sullivan is, among other things, an author, and Tournament of Death 3 is his novel in 16 days. It sounds crazy, and I think he's the first person to admit that. He's going to talk to us about that later on in this episode. I also want to go ahead and let you know about something that's coming up here in the near future. I have not created the Facebook page for it yet, but later this month, 
February 20th, is the next Monster Kid Radio crash. If you're in the Portland, Oregon area, join me at the Hollywood Theater for the second installment of the Cinescopio series. Cinescopio is a three-month series celebrating the best in Latin American cinema, and this year they're doing Luce Libre films on February 20th at 7 p.m., $8 a ticket, a double feature at the Hollywood Theater. They're going to be showing Santo versus the Martian Invasion, and then the documentary Viva Luce Libre. Now, I haven't confirmed this yet, but my understanding is that there's also going to be a brief panel after the movie, after the documentary, and I'm super excited for that. You guys heard that on Monster Kid Radio a few weeks ago in episodes number 65 and 66, so go back into the archives and check that out. And again, our archives are at monsterkidradio.net. See, it all comes around, so go check out our website after this episode. Find links to everything that we talked about. I've talked too much. Let's get into part one of our discussion with Frank Dietz right after this. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Hindu, Podcast. Syndrome, Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Monster Kid Radio, I'd like to welcome to the show a man who's been in my movie collection for years in one way or another, Frank Dietz. How's it going, Frank? Not very good, Derek. Thank you. Yeah, I say that you've been in my collection for years because when I look at your IMDb, I see that, I mean, you're kind of all over the place. You did some work for Disney. You worked with somebody that I sometimes refer to as my 50s girlfriend, Julie Adams. I mean, oh, you've, yeah. done, <laughs> you've done a lot. And now we're I mean, looking at you as a documentarian. So, I mean, you've got a lot going on here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, one thing that I've always done is I, I'm constantly looking to reinvent myself because you just never know when, you know, something that you are comfortable and happy doing can suddenly go away. And so I always try to make sure that I have got several different skill sets and I've been very lucky because I've been able to utilize just about all of them one way or another. I went to college for theater and art 
And I knew from very early on that I wanted to work in the movie business, even though I didn't know how or what I'd be doing in the business. I just <laughs> I just knew I wanted to. I, I saw Abbott and Costello and Me Frankenstein when I was like six. And, you know, I was watching this movie and be and so blown away. And I was just like, I didn't know how. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that I wanted to do this. So basically from that point onward, I was just like, okay, whatever it is that you do in this business, I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, it started with acting. I acted in high school and then I, you know, was a theater major in college. So that was, that was the like likely thing to do first. And I was very lucky that a friend of mine from elementary school, basically, um, John Fasano, he had started making films and um, invited me to try out for a role in, in the first one that he did, which was called Zombie Nightmare. I auditioned for it, even though the character's name was already Frank. I was kind of was hoping that was a good sign, you know, and uh, I got the part. And then, you know, I got to work with my childhood hero. I got to act with Adam West, which was, you know, remarkable. Now, the movie, not so good. Not Uh-oh. a good it's um, become sort of a cult film because of Mystery Science Theater, but um, uh, which is the greatest thing that could have possibly happened to that film. It would have disappeared forever, forever otherwise. <laughs> that was the first movie I worked on in any capacity, really. And so it went from acting in, in these rather <laughs> strange horror films that we shot in Canada to coming out to L.A. to become a screenwriter, which I did. For many years and earned a living doing that for a while. And then the opportunity came up to go to Disney. And I was just like, well, I'm not going to pass that up, you know. And then I had to to call back onto my 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 art background, you know. And, you know, that so so I kept every few years I'd be doing something different just to keep um, myself interested and and moving forward at all times. And and if one thing stopped, I could always go back to the other one. So that's that's always just been the way I I look at things. I was like, what, what's the next cool thing that I can do? You know, I'm trying to imagine the transition from working on things like Zombie Nightmare to Mulan. I'm trying to imagine the culture shift in workplace environment, that sort of thing. What was the transition like? Well, you know, it was an, it was an interesting transition because it it wasn't it wasn't that direct. I mean. You know, I went from from working on the the horror films, which you know, I mean, they were they were not they were not expensive films, but at the same time, they, they, we still utilized a full professional crew and and shot it like any other movie was shot. Mm-hmm. It was a professional environment. It was just different from uh, you know going to, when I went when I went to work at Disney. It was a more uh, studio kind of environment. But in between those two things was screenwriting and, you know, writing movies for for David Warner and Dean Stockwell, which was like awesomely cool. Wow. So that was like in between the two. So there was, uh, it, it wasn't so jarring uh, a transition really. You know? Did your Disney co-workers get a kick out of your low budget horror movie background? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every, once they found out, everybody, you know, wanted to see these bizarre films. And and back at that time when I was working at Disney, they really they weren't that accessible. They hadn't really come out on DVD yet, or um, I mean, there was still old VHS copies kind of looming around. And 
it was while I, I think it was while I was at Disney that um, Mystery Science Theater decided to do their version of Zombie Nightmare. Mm. Uh, so that and that was a, a huge deal. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, suddenly turning this crazy, cheap, weird horror movie into a really funny comedy. You know, so they really did us justice in that regard. <laughs> well, you mentioned old VHS tapes and. I, I remember from my childhood growing up at the video stores, the videotape case for Black Roses. I mean, it had that gorgeous cover. I think it lit up or something like that. It was a beautiful VHS tape. And, and I have to ask you about working on that film because you worked with Julie Adams. Yeah. I scenes with Julie, but um, there was more than one occasion where we got to just sit down and have one-on-one time, you know, in the trailer or, you know, waiting off camera or whatever. And that was a huge thrill for me. I mean, just like working with Adam West was. I mean, Julie Adams, star of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh-huh. <laughs> like, you know, sends your heart a flutter even to this day when you, when you watch that film. But my heart's fluttering now thinking about you having a conversation with her. Come on. <laughs> thing about both of those people, by the way, and a lot of other celebrities or you know, movie stars, whatever you want to call them, that I've had the opportunity to work with was that you know, it was really gratifying to finally meet them and work with them and find out that they're really cool people. They're just nice, regular people that are, you know, Adam has an amazing sense of humor and Julie is just the, the sweetest thing on the face of the earth. And it's nice to be able to call these people my friends, you know, which is, is not something that gets to happen to everybody. And I'm, I feel very blessed in that regard. Have you had a chance to run into any of them at like conventions or other events since then? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, Adam, I haven't seen Adam in a while, although we're constantly um, sending regards to each other uh, through other people. <laughs> uh, Adam and I, oh my gosh, we would go out um, uh, to dinner um, whenever you know we were in the same vicinity or whatever. We stayed friends for quite a long time after Zombie Nightmare. I suppose it's something if you if you survive that, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're like veterans of a war or something. <laughs> You've been trauma bonded. Um, but he's a he's a funny, funny man. And I, I really enjoy time with him. And Julie, I see all the time. Uh, Julie is, you know, a native of this area, L.A. So I see her at signings, at conventions. I, I mean, her her son Mitch is a is a great guy. So, um, so Julie feels like uh, like an old friend, really. <laughs> so not to get all creepy, but if I ever get a chance to meet Julie Adams, what kind of pointers can you give me to not completely lose my mind? Oh boy, <laughs> is so lovely and so appreciative of her fans. I think that she's probably experienced uh, the, the absolute worst kind of fandom. <laughs> I imagine you'd be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> Poor thing. No, she's she's a, a lovely, lovely woman and nice, nice lady. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin from CBS News. I'm Charlie Dugdale. I'm reporting from Bob Burns' backyard in Burbank, California, USA. Who are Bob and Kathy Burns? <laughs> Let me think about it for a while. I'll see if I can tell you. <laughs> Bob and Kathy Burns. Bob and Kathy Burns. Bob and Kathy Burns. <laughs> Who am I today? Well, let me see. <laughs>
Bob and Kathy Burns were smart enough to preserve almost every important artifact in sci-fi movie history. They're archivists of an entire generation of practical effects that are, will no longer be with us. Because of CGI, all the stuff that you see in this basement is going away. They don't do this anymore. Every piece has a story. Bob isn't just a collector. He's, he's lived all of this stuff. He had his own career in entertainment, but he always was a fan, and even more than a fan, Bob and Kathy both drew around them a group of people, mostly kids, who went on to change the face of the business. Bob and Kathy, to me, are her family. They're just such genuinely nice, loving, caring people. Bob and Kathy are known by a lot of people because of their Halloween shows. And they started very small in the front yard in, in Burbank. Every kid in every neighborhood wishes that they had somebody like Bob living there to do this cool stuff. The pedigree of Oscar winners and Oscar nominees and the talent. People like Dennis Murin and Skotax and Woodruff, uh, Baker. They all decide now we can come together and do things for just us. And we don't have to worry about the studios. We don't have to try to make anybody happy. And they throw all their ideas in the pot. And we mix it all together. And we come up with these brilliant plans. I've said many times before, and, and I mean it, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I wouldn't have changed anything for the time I was born. And that's what it's all about. And that's what Kathy and I have always tried to do, is have a great time. Your humor is what's kept this whole thing alive. Really? You betcha. Oh, I'm sorry about that. So you said that the first film that really kind of got you interested in movies was a monster movie. I mean, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. From there, you go to these low-budget horror movies, to Disney, you're writing. How long did it take for you to come back home to the classics with things like Beast Wishes? You know, like I said, always reinventing, always looking to do something that I hadn't done before. And um, I was, a few years ago, asked by uh, Larry Blameyer, who's mm-hmm. a wonderful director of the Lost Skeleton of Cadavra and Trail of the Screaming Forehead, he asked me if I would be in the sequel to Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, which is called The Lost Skeleton Returns Again. And I was thrilled uh, to do that and had a lot of fun. And um, while I was on that film, I met uh, Trish Geiger, who is also acts in most of Larry's movies, and she actually produced one of Larry's films, uh, Dark and Stormy Night, which I ended up helping out on. And we immediately, you know, liked each other. And, and within a couple of years, we the, the circumstances came up that we decided we were going to create a production company. And the first film that we decided to do in this production company, which is called Benevolent Monster Productions, based mostly on Mighty Joe Young, because he's a benevolent monster. Well, Bob Burns who is well-known in the horror and sci-fi community as the uh, what I like to call the ambassador, uh, the, the goodwill ambassador to fandom. He played a gorilla in Dark and Stormy Night, Trisha's film. And it was, in fact, the last time that he put on his very famous gorilla suit that he wore in the Ghostbusters TV series and, and lots of television back in the 60s and 70s. And Trish wanted to do a short little DVD extra about Bob. She didn't really know who he was, and she thought that would be fun to put on the, the DVD of Dark and Stormy Night. So she asked me if I would, she knew that I knew Bob, 
And she said, you know, can you help me do this little interview? So we went to his house. We shot this little interview. And while we were there, Trish turned the camera on to Kathy, Bob's wife, who was no, never on screen. Right. And right. Kathy said something about how much she loves this world, this world of fan monster kid world, because, you know, when they when you bring a whole bunch of creative people together and they and they they start throwing their ideas together and it creates this fire. And Trish became so intrigued by that. She was just like, well, we should really maybe someday do a documentary about this. As it turns out, as luck would have it, in fact, it didn't seem like it at the time, that little short film that we created that day didn't make it onto the DVD of Dark and Stormy Night. So now we were like, well, why don't we just expand on what we've started and, and create a full length feature? And that's how the that's how that all came together. And you know, Bob Burns represents Monster Kid at, at its, you know, ultimate, at extreme. I think he was the original Monster Kid. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> you know, he w- was a Monster Kid when there was, the, the term didn't exist and, you know, started collecting cool stuff when he was very young and, and, and hung out on sets, movie sets like Unknown Island and Invasion of the Saucer Man and so forth. And so it was very easy to choose... Bob Burns is the subject of, of <laughs> my first movie as a producer. It was amazing, the, the outpouring of love that happened when we announced we were going to do that project. Everybody came out of the woodwork and was just like, how can I help? You know, what can I do? We did a Kickstarter campaign for that, and uh, it was very successful. But other people who couldn't necessarily help us in that regard were like, what do you need? Can I do artwork for you? Can I can you uh, can I offer my studio for you to shoot at? Can I offer you lights or camera or whatever else you need? And it was it was really a testament to how much you know <laughs> these people are are loved and adored. And every every uh, celebrity guest that we had in that movie, no, I mean nobody said no. John Landis, Joe Dante, Rick Baker, Greg Nicotero, Dana Gould, you name it, they were all just like whatever you need, I'm there for you. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. So it sounds like you knew the Burns before you made this movie, before you worked with them. Did you have a relationship going back a long time? Or I met Bob at Taylor White's shop, Creature Features, which just recently reopened, by the way. In fact, I'm going there this afternoon for a big dinosaur event. Which is going to be. I met Bob there. That's where I met a lot of the people that are in my circle now. You know, Greg Nicotero and Frank Darabont and... Oh my gosh, you, you name it, I think we all met each other there. And then as it happens, and this is really kind of funny and a complete coincidence, I ended up buying a house that was right around the corner from Bob Burns. Oh, man. <laughs> I know, and that was the selling point to me. Uh, <laughs> it was like, I don't care, it could have been a shack. You know, the, the minute I realized that the house was right around the corner from Bob, I was just like, sold, done, I will take it, you know. <laughs> Did he get commission on that? That's why <laughs> he should. But you know, um, uh, Bob has been a friend of mine probably. Oh my God, going back seventeen some odd years now, I think. In fact, the reason he was in Dark and Stormy Night happened because I invited Bob to the set of The Lost Skeleton Returns again, and he came up there, and we were standing on the set with Larry, the director, and Bob said, "Oh, I heard you're going to be doing a old Dark House movie." 
Larry said, yeah, yeah, it's called Dark and Stormy Night. We're going to be, um, you know, it's the old, like, the bridge is washed out. The strangers have to spend the night in the old dark house and people start getting murdered. And Bob just goes, well, you got to have a gorilla in it. And Larry just looks and goes, uh, okay. <laughs> and he put Bob in the movie in as the gorilla. And it doesn't really make any sense, but, you know, Larry's movies are, are that way on purpose, you know. And so that's how Bob got in, you know, got the part in Dark and Stormy Night. And that, of course, led to the story I just told about us, you know, doing the DVD extra and creating Beast Wishes, which we're very proud of. The movie's been really well received and, and we won a few awards and, and got the Rondo Award last year for mm-hmm. it. I feel like, you know, we did Bob justice, Bob and Kathy justice. I think it's a great documentary. I was a huge fan of it. I would like to congratulate you on your success with it. I think it's well-deserving of all the awards it's gotten. What was Bob's reaction, or even Kathy's reaction, when they saw the finished product? Gosh, well, here's the funny thing is that they, at first, they were not certain about this at all. They were like, no, you know, who wants to see a movie about our lives and so forth? They were very um, pretty humble people, really. And so it took a while for them to get used to the fact that we were actually making this film. You know, they just kept Bob would always say, oh, you, you two are crazy. You, you guys are crazy. Have I told you today that you're crazy? You know, <laughs> time as we as it progressed and, you know, more and more people started, you know, uh, coming, uh, you know, to be in the film and. And they were watching, you know, the, the movie actually come to, to fruition. They started to get, you know, more and more comfortable with it. And then Bob started asking me, well, when can I see some of it? And I was just like, well, you don't get to see any of it. You don't get to see any of it until it's finished. And you'll see it the night of the premiere. And he was, he said, oh, all right, or whatever. And then I found out that behind my back, he was going to our editor and saying, oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, I could see some of it. And luckily, Andrew Cash, our amazing editor, uh, didn't fall for that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we had our premiere April 12th, 2012 at the Arclight in Hollywood. And that night we had a nice crowd of, you know, over, there were over 200 people in there. And Bob and Kathy saw the movie for the first time that night with everyone else. It was kind of nerve wracking. I mean, uh, <laughs> but um, when it was over, they were just so happy. They were they were really happy. I think that they felt like we had accurately captured their love and their appreciation for this Monster Kid community and for each other. And because in the end, that's what the movie is. It's 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 really a love story. They're they're happy with it, and and they've they've definitely been supportive in every regard. They've go, they've come with us to screenings and to conventions and, you know, made personal appearances and, and so forth to help promote the film and sell the film. So I, I so I think they like it. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. So you're still friends. <laughs> still friends at this point. Right on. It's available on DVD now. So it's not still making the festival circuit or anything, is it? We're, we're pretty much done with the festival circuit. And we, we did quite a few festivals. We traveled uh, uh, to quite a few different places and, and, it was nice. The very first one that we did, we won our first award, which was a Fright Night Film Festival in, in Louisville, Kentucky. That was a great way to sort of kick things off. But we, oh my gosh, we went to Utah and to, to Carmel, and uh, we screened at San Diego Comic-Con last year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was, it's, um, it's been really nice. You know, it's been a nice ride, and um, 
at this point, I think we're we're kind of done with that sort of promotion. So, and we want to concentrate on the future. So, we're we're now looking to basically get a broadcast deal for it, just to you know show it on some cable network or something. Let let Amazon take care of the sales. <laughs> well, I was going to say it is available on Amazon as of this recording right now. It's twenty four ninety nine. Yeah, and I think it's well worth every penny. It's a great documentary, one of my favorites of recent years when it comes to this particular subgenre, you know, this monster kid subgenre that we all love so much. What is it you think about this particular subgenre that kind of inspires people like you or, you know, other filmmakers or artists and all that to get out there and just start making their own art to their own movies, their own videos, celebrating this particular type of movie? We're, we're living in a, in a wonderful time right now because it wasn't that long ago that creative people, you know, had the ability to really go out and make their own film or, you know, their own project without getting permission from a uh, distributor or something like that. I mean, we, we now have the ability to make our own projects. And I think that was always there. I think the inspiration was always there. It's just now, now it's more accessible. And so now we're seeing more of it, which is wonderful. We're seeing, you know, lots of people making, uh, making their own movies that pay tribute or, or homage or, or just utilizing their imagination. And that's really what it comes down to is, is that genre movies inspire. When I say genre, I mean horror, sci-fi, fantasy, uh, are, sure. are more inspirational because they utilize so much more of the, of the imagination. They, they take the the real world and they and they spin it out into into <laughs> completely new directions. I think that that is one of the things. It's, it's almost a common denominator for all of us. Most of us came from uh, monster kids, if you will. You know, we 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 have a similar background. Very often, we were the quieter kids that uh, didn't have a lot of of support in their love. <laughs> you know, and and there's one other guy <laughs> in your town that you know or gal that you know, shared this similar interest. And, you know, back in the day, before there was internet, basically all there was was, you know, Famous Monsters Film Land magazine. And it wasn't yeah. until, you know, only not that long ago that suddenly, with the advent of the internet in particular, we started to find out how many of us are out, really are out there. And look how, look how cool it is to be a nerd now. Look at San Diego Comic-Con, you know, if you can get tickets. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything's changed, but it's it's so nice to see so many people with this shared love and affection for this genre. I have no idea if I answered your question at all. <laughs> I think you kind of nailed it. I mean, the, these particular types of movies, and I'd even go as far as like with your animation background as well. You know, it is about engaging the imagination on a level that you don't get with say like the latest romantic comedy starring somebody who used to be on television. You know, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of engagement. Yeah, for sure. And I, I enjoy kind of playing in that field myself. And, and as I've done monster kid radio over the past almost year now, I've talked to some artists and writers and things like that who just seem to really embrace the imagination part of it. Yeah. And it, and it is a magnet for people, you know, for like-minded people. Frank, 
is a hell of a guy, man. I had a lot of fun chatting with him, and not just because that puts me one step closer to actually having spoken with Julie Adams, but you know, he's just a great guy. I had a lot of fun talking with him, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I really encourage you to come back in two days for the next episode so you can hear part two of our conversation with Frank about the new film, Long Live the King. I'm excited for that documentary. There is a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net to get you to the crowdfunding site. It's through a company called Capapal or Capapol. Frank and I talked about how that's pronounced in the next episode, so you'll have to stay tuned for that as well. But go to monsterkidradio.net to find the link to that. Or go to Benevolent Monster Productions' website at www.benmonsterfilms.com to find links to everything that they've got going on. They're not just monster documentaries. They've got some other projects in the works as well that I think everybody should check out. I'm going to take another short break, and then we're going to dive into our conversation with Stephen E. Sullivan about Tournament of Death 3 right after this. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune in to B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. I want to welcome back to Monster Kid Radio returning guest, Stephen D. Sullivan. How's it going, Steve? Hey, it's going pretty well out here in frozen Wisconsin. <laughs> I hope you're staying warm and your your fingers are staying loose and limber and, and ready to work because you've got a project coming up that I want to talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. Cool. And that's Tournament of Death 3. This is the third time you've done this. Is it a novel? Is it a short story collection? <laughs> Tell us about it, it. It's a completely insane thing to do. It is, it's a novel. And you've heard of National Novel Writers Month, right? Right, right. Where in November, supposedly – which I've never participated in, and you'll find out why shortly. You are supposed <laughs> people that want to write a novel are supposed to start at the beginning of November and write a novel during the month, which is entirely possible, especially if it's a you know a thirty to fifty thousand word novel. So, what Tournament of Death is is me writing an entire novel during the Olympic Games. Wow. And I, I've done this twice now. Through the mists of time four years ago, I'm not sure why I, I thought this would be a wonderful thing to do. Probably because during the Olympics, I'm just sitting in front of the television anyway, because I love the Olympics. My wife loves the Olympics. We're big Olympic junkies. Summer or winter, we love the whole thing. Okay. You know, there's a lot of the, the things that people aren't crazy about, like bobsled and, and ski jumping. Those are the things I like best, right? So... Even in the the so-called lull times, there's almost always something summer or winter that I'm interested in doing. So at some point it occurred to me that I was sitting in front of the, 
the television, maybe I could actually do some work while I was sitting in front of the television. And somehow, I got into my head that it would be fun to write a novel. An entire novel, over 16 days. And then because, I guess I'm... I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry, can I interrupt? Yeah. It's fun to write a novel over the course of 16 days. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Okay, okay. (laughs) Now... I am a writer by profession now, sure. and I, you know, I've written comic books and I wrote, did games and all that kind of stuff. But for a long time, I've been working on novels, and there was a point where early on, I had a lot of work for hire, and I would try to cram my own stuff in between. And there were times when I could write a thirty thousand word novel in about two weeks or less if I was really, really bearing down on it. And this wow. is when, okay. when I was younger and spryer and thirty-five thousand words a day well, that was a minimum <laughs> rather than looking like oh that's a really high level goal which is what it does now i guess the the second million words are maybe harder than the first million or something like that so it wasn't like i hadn't done it before but it occurred to me it was something i could do and then i had an even crazier idea which was i would do it live online so every day i would get up in the morning with a blank computer screen, some kind of notes about what was going to happen, a general idea of the whole arc, and I would watch the Olympics and I would write a chapter. And the framework I came up for doing this is a tournament situation, which is like the Olympics in some sense. So there are people from all over this fantasy world, uh, which is called the World Sea, the Blue Kingdoms, that I created with uh, Gene Raby, who's an author friend of mine. People from all over this would come together, and they would have this contest to see who was the best. Now, in the first tournament of death, it wasn't really clear what would happen after that initial conflicts were. But it turned out that when the, the heroes got to the aisle, they were put through a series of tests and weeded out. And then the people that survived the preliminary and then the semifinal tests were all sent off on a quest for this ultra-powerful wizard prince guy who uh, who uh, seems to want these artifacts, but uh, at this point, no one's really sure why. But he's, you know, if if you want the Empyrean diamond, then gather a bunch of guys that are, might be able to get it for you and send them off. And if you've got, you know, you're a powerful wizard and you control a kingdom. Give them whatever reward they want at the end of that. So that's that's the kind of frame for the story that I decided to create over the 16 days that I would be writing this book or what is now turned into this series of books. It sounds uh, like an <laughs> undertaking. It's a crazy idea. It's a completely <laughs> insane thing to do. You know, because basically I have I start with nothing every day and I have to write the chapter. And then I have to rewrite the chapter at least twice because even on my best days, no one ever wants to see your first draft. I don't care who you are. And unless you're churning out pure pulp and it's really acceptable to have misspellings and things that don't match up quite right and that kind of stuff. And God knows there's a history of that in some phases of writing. You have to rewrite everything twice. So you write it. You rewrite it twice. If you have a loving, wonderful wife like I do, she reads it to make sure that you haven't really screwed up something. And then you post it online. So this is something that's going to turn up online as you go. Is it going to be a you know, daily post? Yeah. So The first one I did entirely free, 
people just told people about it. And, uh, you know, a couple of handfuls of people, maybe more, showed up and they, and they read it. And, and you can still go online and, and punch in Tournament of Death and find a link that will tell, take you to the chapter-by-chapter chapter thing. Last time, I thought, well, maybe I should try to make some money from this. So I decided to do a Kickstarter. And so I created some reward levels where people could get books, you know, or they could get potentially other things. There was one guy that had a character that I worked with him and created a character that got inserted to the story and that kind of stuff. So I did a Kickstarter, and I set up a, a dedicated website where people could give me feedback live during the whole process. And then at the end of every day, again, I posted on this exclusive website the chapters of the book as they went along. And that worked really, really well. Um, I'm aside, still, aside from it being a completely crazy idea, right? Where crazy is the given here. This is a nutty thing to do. Writing live, which I seem to be doing more often than is probably healthy, <laughs> is, is a nutty thing to do. It's nutty whether it's this or whether it's Daikaiju Attack, which is not as live as this, but Daikaiju Attack releasing something every week and not having the whole thing done before you do it. Mm-hmm. There's all there's a tightrope thing going on there where it's it's entirely possible you can at any moment fall over the edge of the cliff and end up you know a thousand feet down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon rather than on your little Philippe Petit tightrope <laughs> over the canyon. So you mentioned Daikaiju Attack and I and I wanted to bring that up as well because that's wrapping up here soon, right? Yeah, Daikaiju Attack is I just just finally because I knew I was going to have to spend a lot of time in the tournament, just finally finished the roughs of the last chapters of the story. There are 38 chapters. And I just posted yesterday 30 or 31. So in theory, just because I'm not insane enough, if if I'd planned this better, it it would have been better. The two things will be intersecting over the course of the Olympics, where every day during the Olympics I'll be writing a new chapter and posting that, and then every Friday or Saturday, sometime during the weekend, I'll release a new Daikaiju Attack chapter as well. Okay. okay. <laughs> and Daikaiju Attack is entirely free. Right. Backflashing just a little. So Tournament of Death 3 is also a Kickstarter. And the base level to get a chapter every day is 16 bucks, And... We're already funded. I just started it yesterday, and much to my surprise and delight, uh, it immediately funded, and we immediately hit three of the stretch goals that I'd set up. And then I put three more up this morning, and when I got home from the movies with my wife this afternoon, we'd hit two more of the stretch goals, which is wonderful, because the stretch goals, there are some things that are story goals that I thought would be interesting to get people involved, but some of the stretch goals are stories by other authors. So if you get into the Tournament of Death, you're going to get the, you're going to get this story from me mm-hmm. uh, in ebook form at the very least. You're going to, if you want, you can get a paperback or hardback or signed hardback. If you want, you can work with me to create a character that's going to be in the series, or you can get a bunch of your friends together and you can all have like your names of your characters as some of the contestants as a group of contestants or something like that. And there's a whole bunch of other possible rewards that people can get. So, and some of them are already, uh, I have to check some of them may have been snapped up already because you can't have everyone that's participating have their own character because then you don't have any characters to start with. Right. (laughs) 
Well, as of this recording right now, you have just hit a stretch goal that involves somebody else who's been on the show in the past. You've just hit the stretch goal mark for getting a story by Paul McComas. Yes. In the mix. Yes. So, I mean, that's fantastic. Which is a wonderful thing. And Paul is probably very surprised because this morning when I got up, I thought, oh, I need to mention some stretch goals to my backers for the ones they've – since they – actually literally run me out of stretch goals this morning. And I said, okay, I'll put three more up. And A Story by Paul was one of the ones I put in. And then I went off and went out to the movies and did errands with my wife. And when I got home, before I could even call Paul and tell him, hey, your stretch goal is up, (laughs) it was fun. So there will definitely be, in addition to a story by me and a couple of bonus stories, and if you join early enough, you get even more bonus stories. In addition to the Tournament of Death by me, Tournament of Death 3, there is also uh, a story coming to you by Jim Ward, famous game designer and uh, TSR guy, creator of Gamma World and Metamorphosis Alpha. And there is a story by Paul as well. Plus, oh, let me look at the, uh, the goals here online. I think we've got one extra story by me at this point. So there's lots of stuff to get, and if eventually... You could have as many as 16 or more stories for your basic pledge to support this, which is really cool. That's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. I wanted to have you on the show because you're a Monster Kid and all, but why would Monster Kids want to read Tournament of Death 3? We, we talked a little bit on Facebook at one point, you know, how do we connect it to what we love here? And you brought up, like, maybe a Harryhausen influence to some of this stuff? Oh, yeah. Anyone that's heard me talk on your show before or on the B-MovieCast probably knows that Harryhausen is one of my heroes, and his work pervades almost everything I do. You can see Harryhausen in in the Dragonlance books that I did and the Legend of the Five Rings that I did and in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I was writing the comics and all sorts. Pretty much everything I do, there's some shadow of Harryhausen. In this case, there's... It's almost a, a more direct correlation in some ways, because when you and I were talking initially, I was trying to describe what the story is like. And honestly, I, I maybe I'm missing something really obvious, but I could not come up with a precedent for a story in which a guy holds a contest to collect a bunch of heroes and then sends those heroes off on the quest, except Jason and the Argonauts which is, of course, a classic tale of Greek mythology, but also an amazing, wonderful Harryhausen film. Maybe my, maybe my second favorite. Oh, wow. We all know that Seventh Voyage of Sinbad is oh, my favorite. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and even though the emphasis in my book tends to be on... It, the books tend to break down into three parts. There's... Well, there's the gathering of the heroes, but then there's a preliminary and a finals, and then the quest. And Jason isn't quite that, quite that way. But if you know the story, you know that in order to go after the Golden Fleece, Jason, he assembles basically an Olympic Games and gets all the best people at everything to come and compete with the idea that then he's going to take those people off, see the Golden Fleece, and they'll all get glory and live forever. In the Harryhausen thing, they, they have a very brief period where they, they show the Olympic Games, and there's a guy throwing the javelin, and there's a guy throwing a discus, and there's a guy swimming, and then Hercules shows up, and he's like, well, who do you want me to beat? And Jason says, you don't have to beat anyone. Your spot is reserved. So there is that. 
and then they all go off to get the Golden Fleece. And we all, hopefully, we've seen the movie and we know how how that turns out, whether for better or ill. Uh, and that's the only real precedent that I could think for how this story works out. Well, that's enough for me. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing is that there are always monsters. Uh-huh. in these Tournament of Death stories. There are uh, monsters in almost everything I do. If you go to my site, you'll see there's a little tagline that says, Adventure Guaranteed, Monsters Optional. Well, monsters may be optional if I'm writing a boy detective book. <laughs> Although I did write a couple of those that had uh, one that had a, a Star Trek-like situation, another that had had some uh, people in masks and Halloween and that kind of stuff. But most of my stuff is going to have a monster in it at some point or 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 other. So in the in the first one we had we had flying lions we from uh, you know influenced by Osamu Tezuka Astro Boy there are all sorts of little nods to to things that I love and there's always a monster in the end. the last time we had a lot of Cthulhu like monsters and we had a whole race of Gilman one of whom was named Reeko, R-E-E-K-O, <laughs> I think. So, nice. Which, <laughs> so there's always those kind of monster kid things in this. And I'll give you a little bit of a hint and an exclusive. My guess is that at this point, somewhere in this tournament, there will be zombies and there will be dinosaurs. And I haven't told that to anybody yet, so you get the, you get the exclusive now. I mean, wow. When I talk to Vince Rotolo, I may spill the beans tomorrow. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing I was going to say. Listeners, at this point, Steve has already appeared on the B-Movie cast, which will be going out on February 2nd. And they're going to be talking about the Night Stalker over there. Yep. So if you don't listen to the B-Movie cast already. Derek and I are recording this before, but Vince and I will be talking about uh, Carl Kolchak, the original Night Stalker movie. There will be monsters in Tournament of Death. Yes. Three, and if you go to the site, you know, go go to Tournament of Death, or you go to Kickstarter and look up Tournament of Death Three, you will see that there are non-human races as well. Last time we had we had some cat people, and we've got some green skin people this time, and we've got a, a dark elf. I don't tend to write what one would call classic Tolkien-esque fantasy. I love Tolkien; he's a great hero to me. But I also love Howard, and I love Lovecraft, and I love. Harryhausen, and I love all these things, and all of this stuff works its way into my stories. So in the first Tournament of Death story, we got an elf who was more or less Captain Jack Harkness. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Okay. (laughs) And and then, you know, I've had some time travel crossovers. One of the bonuses you could get if you sign up early is some of the Time War stories that I did, which have fantasy characters that are, you know, from my series – of various series, you know, from my science fiction and my fantasy and and other stuff. And, and then there's a guy that might resemble a Time Lord in there somewhere, too. So all of that stuff is fair game when I'm working in this milieu, because the, the idea of the Blue Kingdoms is that it is a world that contains many, 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 many things. It's not a monoculture. It's gotcha. not one of these fantasy worlds that's just Western Europe or just the Far East. There's every everything you can imagine. So there, there are plenty of normal humans of all shapes, sizes, and colors. There are lizard people. There are uh, which we call basilisks. There are winged people that we call sirens. There are the cat people, the alkist, and the the dog people, the alkabar. There's all sorts of characters, as well as elves and dwarves, and, and a number of the things you'd expect. 
plus Cthulhu, of course. There will always be. <laughs> well, that makes everything better, right? <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of Cthulhu-like creatures in the last episode, so... Awesome. Well, we want to make sure that our listeners know how to get to it. I sh- I'm sure they can find it through your website at stephendsullivan.com. Yep, or sdsullivan.com if spelling Stephen is difficult for you. <laughs> <laughs> or just go over to monsterkidradio.net and follow the links in the show notes to either Steve's website or the Kickstarter page. Yep, and you can go to tournamentofdeath.com, too, and see about this and the, the past things. Or you can go to Kickstarter and type tournament of death in and probably uh probably both of the kickstarters will come up the original one that i did two years ago and then this one as well final question Mm -hmm. what is your favorite winter olympic sport oh that's a tough one uh well my wife would say skating but i'm not gonna say skating as wacky as this may seem i'm gonna say bobsled (laughs) hey it's that's no more wacky than mine i like curling (laughs) i I love curling I love curling, and and I live in a place where there are curlers, but I've never done it. I'm so ashamed. Probably bobsled sticks in my mind, though. When you said it, it was like popped right into my head, and I'm sure that part of the reason is James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) Because in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's a bobsled sequence where George Lazenby is uh, trying to get away from the bad guys and being chased. Wow. Ever since that, when I saw that as a kid, <laughs> it was like, that's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. And, of course, now they have bobsled and they have skeleton and they have uh, luge as well. And luge is where you do the bobsled without the sled. <laughs> you're lying on your back going down the bobsled run. Uh-huh. And skeleton is where you're lying on your face <laughs> and going down head first. Those are crazy sports, and I love them all. Well, you you have your bobsled and your skeleton. I'll have my curling, and together we'll have Tournament of Death 3 because it's already funded. I can't wait, man. Already funded. We've got stretch goals already achieved. Jump in now, guys. 16 days of gory. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. I love it. it. I'm hoping it's not going to turn off too many squeamish people, but 16 days of gory. Thanks to Steve for taking some time out of his weekend to talk to us here on Monster Kid Radio about this project. I'm super excited about it. I've read previous Tournament of Deaths, and if you're into that kind of thing, well, you're going to be into this kind of thing. And even if you're not, I'm still going to recommend that you check it out because, one, Steven's one of us. Two, he's a good author. Even if he wasn't one of us, I'd recommend him. So go check that out. Show him some love. Tell him Monster Kid Radio sent you. And... Next week, you're going to get to hear Steve again because we're going to keep the King Kong love going here on Monster Kid Radio. Next week, Steven and I are going to talk about Son of Kong. That's next week. In two days, you get to hear about Long Live the King, the Legacy of Kong, when I have Frank Dietz back on the show to talk about that project. I look forward to seeing, or I guess not really seeing you next week because I'm not looking at you. I mean, if I was looking at you while you're listening to the show, that's a little creepy. But either way, I look forward to being in your eardrums in a couple of days here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the trailer to Beast Wishes. Frank gave us permission to play that here on the show. It also does not apply to the song 
Plankton Dance from Insect Surfers. It's on their album Infragreen. You can find out more about them at insectsurfers.com or follow the link in the show notes. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to you in a couple of days. <laughs> 